Hello, my name is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to this episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to yet another extraordinary organization serving their community by conserving and preserving our heritage. It could be an organization in your community, in your county, or in your state. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. Thanks for listening. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com. But wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, and subscribe. We trust that people want to have a better understanding of these precious organizations, know how they're funded, how each is unique to the communities they serve, what programs and events they currently have underway, and what services they offer to the public and their members. We believe this information is vital for people to know how to work with these organizations and how important it is to join support, volunteer with, and donate to one or more of these core societies. Each guest organization on Preservation Oaks brings with them a truly unique viewpoint and perspective around how they tell the story of their communities, how they continue to be relevant for the times in which we live, and what kinds of exhibits and volunteer opportunities they have created. This makes listening to each episode of the program interesting, fun, and diverse. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historical February birthdays for this episode. Happy birthday to Rosa Parks, the civil rights activist, whose birthday is February 4th, 1913. Happy birthday on February 6th. George Herman Babe Ruth, the greatest baseball player of all time, was born in 1895. Ronald Reagan, the 40th U.S. president, who served from 1981 to 1989, was born on February 6, 1911. Charles Dickens, a novelist and author of The Christmas Carol, was born on February 7, 1812. Alessandro Volta, Italian physicist and inventor of the electric battery. Where would we be without the electric battery? He was born on February 18, 1745. And finally, Levi Strauss, the inventor of denim jeans, was born on February 26, 1829. Here are some thought-provoking facts from history. February is African American History Month. 
Many of the foremost institutions of our country will have programs that recognize the generations of African Americans who struggled with adversity to achieve equal rights in our nation's society. February 21st brings President's Day, a federal holiday, also known as Washington's birthday, that is celebrated on the third Monday in February. George Washington's actual birthday is February 22nd. In 1935, Wallace Carruthers manufactured the first nylon polymer. Can you even imagine what our society would be like if we didn't have plastics and nylon? In 1953, Francis Crick and James Watson discovered the chemical structure of DNA molecule, double helix. What a great discovery. In 1956, an American engineer by the name of Wright Forrester issued a patent for computer core memory. This brought us into the modern age and facilitated AI. Couple of jokes. The definition of mythology is genealogy or history without source documentation and references. Where there's a will, you'll find a genealogist. I'm going to take a sip of tea. I love Twining's tea. Good. Now you can follow us on preservationoaks.podbean.com, Pandora, Twitter, Facebook, CastBox, Reason, YouTube, Overcast, PocketCast, Castro, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcast, and Audible, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Wisdom, Gab, and Listen Notes under MicroStream Radio. Preservation Oaks, Sean Thomas Radcliffe or Sean Radcliffe. You can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Now, listeners, from this point forward in every episode, we'll stop reviewing the exact podcast directories we're available on and instead just say Preservation Oaks is available for listeners on nearly all podcast platforms as well as Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We're also working on making the program available on Getter, G-E-T-T-R, Rumble, and Locals in the near future. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we'll be meeting with the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame located in Bonner Springs, Kansas. They have a wonderful center with a number of great things to see. They were initially created by the United States Congress, but are not funded by the government, and that's important to know. They are funded by public donations. They tell an important story of America, and it'll be fun and interesting chatting with Dave Hurlbrink, the president of the board. For this episode, we greet Debbie Burgess, the president and her colleagues, Linda Rogenkamp, treasurer, and Dale Renfro, vice president. All of these talented people are leaders of the Onega Historical Society, located in Onega, Kansas, which is about 50 miles from Topeka and also about 50 miles from Manhattan, Kansas. If you're a resident in the local area, this episode will help you understand what the society has to offer, how you can participate and take advantage of the worthwhile events the society sponsors, and how to best support them by volunteering and donating. All right, welcome to the program, Debbie, Dale, and Linda. How are you all doing today? Great. (laughs) It's a beautiful day here in Kansas. Yeah. I think it's about 55 today, but it will plummet by the weekend. Hey, I'd appreciate it if each of you would please give us a short biography of yourselves so we can get to know you a little bit. The audience can get to know you. Let's start with President Debbie Burgess. Well, uh, good afternoon. 
in thinking about what I would like to share about myself, I suppose I would start by saying I grew up on a farm near Onega. After graduating from high school, I went on to Kansas State University and got a degree in home economics. And then after I graduated from K-State, I married my high school sweetheart and we went into Peace Corps and served for three and a half years in Ecuador, South America. Very nice. When we came back, my husband went into farming with his dad and I started teaching home economics at the local high school. After about 20 years of that, I transferred to a neighboring school system. In total, spent 42 years in public education, teaching all the way from preschool to post-secondary adults. I taught with a local community college for a while. We had three sons, and when it was time for them to decide if they wanted to be in 4-H or Cub Scouts, they had to choose. We weren't going to do both of them, and they chose Cub Scouts. So I spent 25, 30 years involved with uh, Cub Scouting at some different levels, and also with Big Brothers Big Sisters. And then when I retired from teaching, which I loved, one of my mentors in life was a member of the Onega Historical Society and talked me into joining the Historical Society just as a volunteer, and I have fallen in love with it. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) Well, I don't know. It it can consume a lot of time, but it has just been a, a wonderful journey And we have a wonderful team that works with our historical museum in Onega. And so there's a lot of of activities that we enjoy putting on for the public. It also has given me opportunity to stay connected with the school children and present programs with the school. That's so important. That's a little bit about me. What a nice background. Thank you so much for sharing. Dale, what's your background? Power lineman for 42 years. I'm retired now. During that time... I was on the city council for 35 years, fire chief for 30. You're sort of a renaissance man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then I guess I got retired and I needed something to do. So I started uh, helping up at the museum and I do a little woodworking. Well, what got you interested in history? Oh, just Onega. I'm from Mayetta originally, but I've been here since 73. Onega is my home now. And I want to see Onega, you know, strive and move on. That's so good for Onega. Thank you so much for sharing. Linda Mm -hmm. Rogenkamp, how about you? Hello. I've been also in education and farming. I uh, retired about eight years ago. And prior to that, I was teaching junior and senior high science for almost 25 years and then became a tech coordinator for the school district up here for five years. And then I went on to a principalship and did get six years in with two of them at Onega, four of them at a school at Manhattan Catholic Schools. And I love Actually, all the work that I was able to provide, uh, it's, it's neat to work with children and, and parents and, and everybody that in the community. Most of my time, though, was here at Onega, even though I grew up in the neighboring county on a farm and south. And now I live with my husband here south of Onega and retired and helped with raising cattle. We got a diversified farm. I have two daughters and right now they're out and about with their education themselves and their own own field of work. That's a wonderful background. What is a diversified farm? A diversified farm means besides for the cattle, my husband also raises corn, milo and uh, soybeans. We have uh, hay meadows for haying and hard workers. uh, 
Yeah, I, I raise a garden and do some canning, and it's it's kind of neat. I got into the history, I guess, because this is where I grew up. These these counties in Northeast Kansas are really very special. All the immigrants that came to this area, and we have that background with the Indian tribes and the immigrants that came into this area. And so it's fun to find out and talk to others of how they're their ancestors came to be in this area and and we're all working the land. We're a very much so a agricultural community and uh, all kind of help each other out. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. I can tell you from Google Street View, I noticed that Onega has a lot of trees and it's very beautiful. And I'll let listeners know that Onega is a really beautiful town. It seems like a wonderful place to live and raise children for sure. I get a warm feeling when I look at the town. The thing I most like are the church buildings. I saw two or three churches that are long-standing buildings. They look like they were built, I don't know, let's say the 1870s. But I'm probably wrong because I know nothing about architecture. But they're, they're very well-kept. Some even have the church bell outside on its own platform, which I think is pretty interesting. I haven't seen that before. I also see that Onega Historical Society has a large property that's really well kept. Can you guys give us an overview of the Onega Historical Society and the mission and objectives of the society? This is Debbie. It's interesting to think about an overview. The mission of our Onega Historical Society is to help the community understand our local history. We really focus on our local history and how it ties into some of the neighboring communities. And we want to be able to promote a better understanding of our community and where it fits into our state and into our nation, and also to foster an appreciation of the heritage of our area and some of the cultural kinds of things, as Linda mentioned Agriculture has its kind of own cultural traditions. So our mission really is, our vision and mission is to provide a background and a basis for the rest of the community to come to appreciate what we have in Onega. We have quite a few transient families that come into our town. We have reasonable rent for housing. And so sometimes we have uh, quite a few families traveling through. And sometimes it's hard for transient families to find a connection to their community. And so we hope that the museum can provide a little bit of that, especially for the children as we work with them in the school system. Yeah. But our five basic goals for the museum or the historical society, number one is to preserve our collections that we do have and the collections that are coming in. In the last couple of years, we've had numerous collections of things brought to us. We want to be able to exhibit those in the proper way and we want to be able to tell the story of those uh, particular collections that we have and artifacts. One of our big missions is to educate, not just with the school children, but we have programs we bring in that is for the the total community, for the adult community. And here lately, it seems like we have a lot of people contacting us with uh, especially genealogical research or even research on the town and buildings in the town. But that seems to be a growing area of our historical society right now. Thank you. 
Well, Debbie commented about our collections there, and we, we have two Morton buildings presently, and we also have a schoolhouse and a caboose and a log cabin that is actually an original on parts of the sides and stuff of the wood, etc. We had to make sure to try to preserve that area with a, a nice roof and uh, etc. But we ha- we have quite the collection of things that I think people of history would like to see. We've got a three-legged windmill outside, wow. a, a train signal, a, and a wigwag there that kind of located right by our log cabin to kind of give you an idea. What is a wigwag? Well, it, it's the part of the signaling system is what it is. Okay. Maybe Dale could go on about that a little bit. I want to let that particular signal, the wigwag comes on and then there's hands if they've got any mail, they they raise up a like a flag on its metal. Yeah. And and they'll slow down to pick the mail up. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Does that still so, go on or that went on in history but no longer? Right. Okay. There aren't very many cabooses either anymore. And so visitors to our museum really are interested in the caboose. And Dale is one of our experts on explaining the workings of the caboose and the, and the history of the caboose. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Dale, for being here. Yeah. This is Linda again. I, I guess I wanted to finish. We have a, um, a WPA privy outside there that people can see. And it was part of two other projects that were in the, in the community. We have a WPA building there on our school system, too. But anyway, this privy is kind of fun. It's sitting outside like by the schoolhouse so that people can kind of get the idea that the one room schoolhouse children had to go somewhere if they were there being taught. So we kind of trying to give it a little bit of ambiance with the merry-go-round. And the caboose, though, actually came in from the Union Pacific. And, and, and we do have a little bitty railroad museum just down the road. Mm-hmm. And maybe Dale can talk to you about that. Yeah, too. we started a railroad museum quite some time back. And after a windstorm, we gathered up the leftovers and built a building. And we've got track laid, full-size track. A boxcar that actually hauled cars that they stood on on the end. They stood the front up, more or less just stood them up in the car. And then we've got a wooden boxcar. It's in dire need of some help. (laughs) And then inside we have quite a little bit of railroad stuff, tongs to pick the rail up and signals and the electronic stuff that would tell them when the train was coming. And uh, Now the public can tour all this, Dale? Yes, they have, they have to call, but yeah. That's very nice. You had me at the log cabin. I kept, I keep wondering when, <laughs> when societies preserve those log cabins, you take something that a, some pioneer built way back when and you transfer it to the historical society grounds. How do you keep the wood preserved? Do you have to coat it, paint it so bugs don't get in it? Uh, this is Linda, and uh, actually a couple of years ago, we had a company come in out of Missouri called The Log Guys, and they helped refinish the outside and replace a couple of logs. We were in dire need because um, when the, the log cabin was moved off of its original place into the city on Main Street, and then they moved it up finally to our location okay. where we have it right now. When they did all that, the roof already was deteriorating. So they did re-roof it with just some metal siding so that 
at least we can preserve everything else below. The sides themselves are the actual logs, but we did have to replace two logs. The company said that we would have to do something else. The, the cabin would be lost. So we replaced them with some logs from actually out of Colorado. Nice. And then they put their preservatives on it and rechinked it all the way around for us with some modern type of materials on the outside. So we know it will be preserved forever that way. And then we will keep updating and refinishing the outside with just varnish. And But on the inside, we left the chinking intact in so that we could actually talk about it. And you can see the original woodwork and, and it's not been coated. We, we were just using it as is. Got the wood floor in there yet. We're debating about what to do with it because it too is starting to deteriorate. And so we're going to start looking at trying to make sure we got that safe. We had it moved in there into the town in about 1978, and then they moved it to the present site in 84, but it's right south of a big Morton building, was run off from the town and stuff. So we've had to uh, kind of make sure that we've got a sump pump now that makes sure to get the ground dry down below and because it's sitting on top of a water a lot of work. Yes, it is. Does it, the town or the city know you've done all that? Yes, they do. Okay, they, oh, they can't get around not knowing that we're a little <laughs> town. Uh, we're only about 700 people population anymore and, you know, come and go with others. This is Debbie in regard to our log cabin. It came to the point where we either had to sink some substantial money into it to preserve it or tear it down. It would have been a travesty to watch it just fall down. Yeah. It was very expensive to bring the log cabin guys in and all the work that they had to do to preserve that cabin. It's a building that's near and dear to us, and it is a popular place for people to come and view. And we have it set up so you've got a little, we've got a bed in there and a spinning wheel and we've got a cook stove um, this yeah. is linda there's there's an original cabinet that did come with the log cabin when they moved it into town and it's still there as is so they can actually see some artifacts there that from the original owners lida may is our noted person that actually owned the ground that it was deeded to her and her husband and uh She's got a little chair in there where she had woven the seat itself. And then we've got the original cabinet. But then the other items, we kind of put some dated items of, oh, like an old wood stove that's in there. But actually, this cabin was inhabited up until the 1940s. So, oh, wow. so we feel like, you know, it's okay to put some of those items in there, too, because that's part of the history. Absolutely. It was discovered when the owners were tearing down a house. <laughs> they actually didn't realize that there was a log cabin encased in the house oh, they were, were tearing down. So it has a bit of history, and there are still descendants of Lida May living in the area oh, that take great, great pride story. in it. Your society has been active since 1975, I read, and that's like 47 years has gone by since you started. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. <laughs> we next... just celebrated our birthday on February the 3rd. Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Um... <laughs> uh, in all that time, you've probably had a lot of artifacts and stories shared. Can you tell us a couple of funny or interesting stories from the annals of your society's history? 
Um, well, we had a sewing kit, kit. There we go. that we discovered. Our museum is very, very crowded. And later on, I think we'll talk about our building project. But we had a, a high school student for the past four years has come in through the summer and has started photographing our artifacts in order to put them into a database so that it can be online. Nice. This one cabinet that belonged to this particular family, it was all family-related things, was just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of stuff. And she pulled it all out. And pretty soon she says, Debbie, Debbie, come here, come here. She says, look at this. And what it, it looked like just a, a pouch about a four inch square pouch that was folded over a couple of times. Underneath it was some documentation and she opened it up and it was a sewing kit. Nice. And the documentation said it was from the the Civil War. It had belonged to the father of the man whose case of things we were looking at. But as you unrolled it, there was a little note in there and there's a piece of black silk yeah. And the note said, taken from a dead Southern soldier. And My so goodness. that just, when we saw, when I saw that, it just gave you goosebumps. Okay. <laughs> and to think that we had had the, the right documentation to go with that. But we had to have that professionally framed. And when we get into the expenses of running a museum, things like that are not not cheap to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we don't have, you know, we could have framed it. But if you look at preservation, what we would have done and would have got us by for 20, 25 years. Yep. After 25 years, the next people at the museum are going to go, well, this is falling apart. Yeah, and what were they this thinking? Is, <laughs> what were they, exactly. What were they thinking? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is Linda again. Another little story was, and there's many, as you can tell with Debbie, that we'll find things now that, you know, the, the, the original people in 1975 just, you know, had to just collect, 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 and they didn't get a chance <laughs> to get them displayed. But anyway, another item that came in was in the log cabin. We were all cleaning it out because we were going to have the log cabin preserved. And here we find this sewing machine. And I said, yeah. Debbie, I think this one's, this is a very unique model. <laughs> I think we better start looking this up as to where it originated and all that. And we were able to find a gentleman that, that got it back yeah. to running. Yeah. It's an 1861 Baker and Grover sewing machine. Oh, my goodness. And it would have had to arrive in Kansas in our area, probably by a covered wagon. 90% of these sewing machines are back east and 100% are in museums. And so we have one of the very unique artifacts in our museum. The person that loosened it for us, it was frozen shut. It truly was. You okay. couldn't move anything and there's broken parts and things on it. Well, he was able to loosen everything up and he he's a retired mechanical engineer. He could figure out what should be happening with the different mechanisms. And he also, because he, he and his wife collect antique singer machines, has knowledge of dealers that deal in parts like that. He was able to find the missing parts for us. Once he was loosened up the throat plate, he could find the serial number. And so some of the replacement parts came from original Baker and Grover machines back east. It actually sews. He recommends we do not sew on it yeah. <laughs> because there's one little spring if it breaks. He didn't think he could find a replacement for that. But that's been a lot of fun. And it's going to be featured in a book back east on antique sewing machines. Wow. And that's um, going to be there at the History Center for people to see. Yes. 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 And, yes. and actually appreciate, I guess, for years to come. Right. 
I do think I do have a funny little story. Okay. We on our property, one of our buildings is called the chicken coop. Okay. We forgot to mention the chicken coop. We do. And it basically it's kind of storage, but now we we have such an overflow. We have some different exhibits in there, like old fire farming equipment in there. But anyhow, the roof needed to be replaced. The contractor came with a young kid to help. And of course, the young kid had to go up on top of the rafters and take off the top of the, the building. And he comes running down. He goes, look, look what I found. <laughs> and he had found an egg underneath the rafters oh of what would have been the, you know, the attic of the chicken, chicken coop. You don't want to crack uh, that egg. <laughs> no, we didn't. And the building would have, the last it would have been used, if I remember right, was what, 1949 or so? So that egg had been there a long, long time. And we did have a candle, but they couldn't see anything. But it's, we still have it on display. Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. Can you guys provide the audience with an overview of the city of Onega? I was reading that Onega got named a city around 1879, something Correct. like that. Mm-hmm. And then I read two different things. One said Onega is a Potawatomi Indian name for small potatoes. Mm-hmm. And the other one said that it, it was named for a noted Potawatomi chief. What are your thoughts on that? I looked up a couple of things getting ready for the program. In our old uh, historical booklet that we have at the History Museum, that's kind of a misnomer that they couldn't prove that there was really somebody named that as such. I did find that there was a an Indian word for potato, but it was a Native American further in South America, and it was batata. It's kind of a misnomer, I think. Uh, so we, we have of, a mystery. Yes, we have a mystery. That's what <laughs> How I did Onega say. get its name? A little bit of a mystery, but yet at the same time, we are right on the edge of the Potawatomi Reservation, on the oh. um, upper edge of it, you know, here in the Flint Hills. It is very likely that there could have been an Indian named that. So we we kind of stick to it that it's Onega, means small potato. Uh, okay. We have a lot of Irish settlers in the area, and, and we all raise in our gardens homegrown potatoes and stuff. So uh, Homegrown kind of, Onegas? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was also reading that you have a, a special county fair pavilion at the Potawatomi County Fairgrounds in Onega, uh, and it was built, well, somewhere in the 1920s. What can you tell the audience about that? It's a, uh, not a circle, but it's octagon. There's only a few left in the country anymore. It's been there as long as I've been here. Is it used today when the fair is held? Yes, very much so. It, uh, we had a group of organizers at the Friends of the Pavilion that started in the 2000, early 2000s, and they helped preserve it. Got the roofing redone, yep. new win- windows redone, and the outside of it. They have kind of joined in with now our History Museum group, and they let the Fair Pavilion go back to the Fair Association, which originally built it. And that was in the early 1920s. It was kind of created with the idea that it was going to follow with what the Chicago Fair had, the Ice Palace, I guess, up there, they okay. called it. And if you look for the 
pergolas on that building. It did get designed a little bit after that. For the first year that they had it, that year that they created it, it was for the Fair Association, and they had a big to-do that they had built that. They also have a livestock area now to the north of it, and that through the years was used with the fair, but eventually it was given out to a couple of livestock auctioneers and uh, there was a sale barn there with a, with a restaurant attached kind of inside of it there that they had created for what, 20 to 30 years there that we actually had sales and cattle were brought in. I can remember going to those sales with my own dad. Oh, neat. And so it's kind of special. It, back in the late 1980s, it was no longer being used. And then it was in disrepair too until that 2000 group got a hold of it and, and refurbished it. And now it's used again for the fair. And we use it now for clothing and textiles portions of the 4A and women will show their quilts and all their other belongings, I guess, for the 4-H fair. And I, I know a, a friend that had a wedding in there at one time a few years back. So it, it's been loaned out for different functions. That's fantastic. The good part is it's still being used by the community. It, it's not just sitting there rotting away. We actually recognized the building this year at the fair for 100 years. Oh, nice. So that's true when you say 19. 19- 1920s, yep, <laughs> it was. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. You know, when we talk about providing programs for the public, after the fair was over, we did a special program at the museum on the fair pavilion mm-hmm. and invited in some of the families of those who were auctioneers or cooks or s- did something else for the the the, sa- the the sales, the weekly sales. And it was such a neat evening because everybody was sharing their memories of what they had done when they went to the sale with their dad or one auctioneer had two daughters and they shared the, some funny stories about their dad and their mom running the sale barn. Wow, so that's, neat. that's the kind of outreach we try to provide also. Do they still do the auctions there like they did? No, they, they haven't okay. had. They do in Manhattan, not, not yeah. here in Onega, but there's uh, one in Holton and one in Manhattan. Which they're both about 35 miles away. Now, you mentioned you had this collection of antiques, a log cabin, two Morton buildings, a Victory Schoolhouse, a Union Pacific train caboose donated by the Union Pacific Railroad. And inside the Morton buildings, you must have other exhibits. And what kind of exhibits do you have? And do you rotate those to keep things fresh? You know, we would, this is Debbie, we would love to rotate things to keep them fresh. But we have no storage, and that's why we need to build. (laughs) But if you were to walk into our Morton building, it's 100 by about 50. You would come in and you would see agricultural displays, um, some carpentry types of displays, some railroad types of displays. And then as you come on around, you would also see an area that we call our general store that has products that would have been sold earlier in our town's history. We have one uh, one general merchandise store called the Gertler store that it was one of the first yeah. general merchandise stores in the in the town. And we have their great big outdoor sign in our in our building and put things that pertain to them. Then you would see kind of a, a grocery store area where you'd see some wooden meat chopping blocks that actually the local meat uh, cutter 
trained on those (laughs) wooden blocks decades ago. And then we have a collection of Native American artifacts. Some are Potawatomi. One of our larger collections came from my dad. Uh, Where we lived, there was an Odo Indian tribe that would camp there. And so all of dad's artifacts are from the Odo Indian tribe. And that's been documented by the Historical Society. And then some of the other collections are more to the north of Onega, but you can't say that they're just one tribe of collections. Okay. But it's a, it, all of them is a very nice collection. And then, then you walk through the door and you go into the second half of our Morton building and you'll see displays of early commerce in our town. Uh, you'll see some displays that have to do with the medical field. We have a good hospital here in Onega, but it, it has a longstanding history mm-hmm. of development. And some of the early doctors have given us their doctor kits and their their chairs and things like that. Oh, that's neat. We have kind of an odd collection of old typewriters. We have a collection of things that are the local school. And then probably, oh, I have to mention all our quilts. Yeah. We have a probably 15 or 20 quilts. And of those, a lot of them are friendship quilts that have uh, signatures on them. Okay. And we've gone in and tried to, to research the signature, the family name, and who they're related to and their lifespan and things like that. And it's always fun to see the connections of the people on the quilts. And we have a large military display that we're very, very proud of. And we're proud of all our displays, but we've put a lot of time into our military display, starting with some Civil War artifacts going up through World War One, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Now we have our first case of military uniforms donated by one young man that was in um, Iraq okay. to represent the war on terror. Yeah. Uh, and Dale is one of our our veterans that kind of helps with that area. So I don't know if you would have something you want to add to that. Thank you for your service, Dale. You're welcome. The veterans display is very impressive starting, you know, back to the Civil War and, and right on through to present. We've got several display cases and uh, rifles and uniforms. uniforms. Now, somewhere right in town, you have something called the Doughboy. The Doughboy is a statue. Yes. Okay. Yes, it's a statue at uh, 4th and Leonard. And this is a World War One soldier. And they called those soldiers, and I, I don't know if it was a particular kind of soldier, like an infantry soldier or something like that, but they called them doughboys. Yes, I think it's an infantry soldier because and, and he's got his uh, rifle and the bayonet. And then uh, we have a flagpole there. And if any veteran passes, we lower the flag to half. We've got a sign. We put put their name up there. This is all right within five or six foot of the Doughboy. Very nice. And does the Historical Society take care of the Doughboy, maintain it? You know, we have a very active Onega area veterans uh, group. Okay. And they take care of the Doughboy and they also take care of the flag, take care of all the flags and Mm -hmm. present the honor guard at funerals, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And they also, we do at least two programs a year at the museum, patriotic programs. One is on Flag Day when we have a flag disposal ceremony for the community, for anyone that cares to to get rid of flags that need to be retired. And then we also have a Veterans Day reception at the History Museum. Yeah. Three years ago, we were able to get a grant to document, to do some oral histories of Vietnam veterans through Humanities Kansas. 
Okay. And that that documentation and the stories of Vietnam veterans is, has grown in our museum. Linda was in charge of this. She did oral interviews, and those are all on little flash drives so people can come in and, and view any of those oral histories that they would like to. And we've had some relatives of some of the people that were interviewed come and do that. And since then, I think three of them have passed away. We're kind of good that we had those. I'm so <laughs> glad you got those. Folks, uh, you heard all those beeps probably, but that was yes. uh, <laughs> that was people telling me that I'm late for my break. So it's time to take our first break. Okay. We're here with our guests, Debbie Burgess uh, and her colleagues, Linda Rogenkamp and Dale Renfro from the Onega Historical Society in Onega, Kansas. Listeners, stay tuned. We'll pick up where we left off right after these messages. Hey, everyone. We'll be right back to Preservation Oaks with Sean Thomas Radcliffe after these important messages. Pass history on to your family by joining, donating, and volunteering at the Onega Historical Society today. You'll fall in love with the benefits of membership, access to the collection of unique antiques, the log cabin, the Victory Schoolhouse, and the Union Pacific train caboose. Learn more at the Society's Facebook page. You'll be glad you did. This is Carrie Eilers from the Cedar Falls Historical Society, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Thank you for listening to Preservation Oaks. If you're a member of a museum, historical or genealogical society that has not yet been featured as a guest on our program, please let them know to contact preservationoaks at gmail.com. We welcome everyone. Thank you. We're spending a lot more time at home. Mike binged watched every episode he could fit into his mind. Betsy has painted her kitchen and dining room seven times. Natalie is saving the plastic bread wrapper holders. She has a plan to melt them down to make a new back scratcher. Melissa ate the entire contents of her freezer. Terry uses his virtual reality headset to escape into the microscopic world of dust mites. Yep, lockdowns are no fun, and the longer this goes on, the crazier it's going to get. Stay sane or come back to reality by listening to Preservation Oaks to make the most of life at home during the lockdown. We give you a steady dose of interesting information and reality. How did the county you live in get its name? How can you volunteer and spend your free time helping your local museum, historical, or genealogical society? How was the 1918 flu pandemic similar to today's COVID-19 pandemic 100 years later? How do archivists spend their time? With a bit of imagination, history can be a time machine. The more you learn, the wiser you'll get. To make the most of your time at home, Visit preservationoaks.podbean.com. At Preservation Oaks, we love history. We are very grateful for our historical and genealogical society guests, who share interesting history and information about their society, their current needs, and about what makes them unique. If you're a historical or genealogical society listening to Preservation Oaks, and you'd like to be a guest on the program, please email preservationoaks at gmail.com. Again, that's preservationoaks at gmail.com. Listeners, thank you for listening. You can comment anytime about the show or send suggestions by emailing preservationoaks at gmail.com. Thank you. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. 
Listeners, welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Debbie Burgess of the Onega Historical Society, located in Onega, Kansas. Debbie's the president of the society, and her colleagues are here with her, Linda Rogenkamp, the treasurer, and Dale Renfro, the vice president of the society. We'll continue our discussion where we left off about the exhibits and then focus on the society's role in the community, what kinds of outreach, events, education, and so on. Welcome back, folks. Thank you. to be back we have a lot to share yet yeah so we were talking about exhibits when we took our first break and if you want to continue then please do the uh morton building on the grocery side we have uh horse-drawn equipment uh buggy uh, an old corn wagon railroad carts well and we have a lot of old tin signs that some people find fascinating we also have a strange little thing it looks like a baby coffin, but it has a window in it. Well, we always, we didn't know what it was. We just assumed it was a, either a baby coffin or it was a, a sample, you know, model that people would use to sell coffins from. Right. We had a group come through from another museum and, and they said it was, um, it's a, a coffin that's used in some of the ceremonies for the Odd Fellows. Oh. Well, oddly, <laughs> in our museum, we had this we have this great big picture of this guy. He was a, a one of the first doctors in the Onega area, but he's he's in this kind of different sort of uniform. I guess you'd call it costume. Yeah. And they commented to us that that was his Oddfellow costume. Oh. Uh, so from strangers coming to our museum, this is what is so great about our little small museum is that because we're, we're not real crowded when people come, so we can visit with our, our guests. We can make connections of one artifact that seemed to have significance to us in the med- medical area, yeah. and it did. But then we had this little coffin over here with the agriculture <laughs> stuff, because that's where it fit, space-wise. And suddenly, these people can help us make those connections that begin to tell a better story of uh, some of the artifacts in our museum. And that's what's really neat. And we have a lot of old uh, business ledgers. And for some reason, and nobody knows why, we have an old court docket book from the Vienna Township that's south of Onega. Okay. And this this person that is the odd fellow, this doctor is also mentioned in this court docket book. So it's kind of fun. Sometimes when you're working in the museum, it's like you've got spirits floating around you, (laughs) leading you to different little artifacts and different little facts that if you're a genealogist, you know that strange little facts pop out of nowhere. Absolutely. And, uh, I've had that, that feeling many, many times. <laughs> well, this is Linda to kind of maybe stretch that on. She was talking about odd fellows and coming from Vienna. Well, Pottawatomie actually only had two little townships and Vienna and Mill Creek were the two. And then eventually that was all divided out into about 20 some now but vienna really doesn't exist but we live my my uh, farm is in the vienna township as such there was a little town just south of here along the vermilion but that no longer exists it's it is it was called vienna so we got these ghost towns around our areas and um, the vienna township now is kind of a little bit south of onega but it has a lot of history that ended up creating onega so it's it's kind of fun Actually, looking back at those 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 history books. <laughs> this is Debbie. Vienna actually was the original 
say, town of Onega. But when the railroad came through, it didn't go through Vienna. It went further north. And that is what established Onega as a town. Uh, There's other towns in the area that the same thing happened. They were actually founded in a little bit different location, but the railroad moved them. So the railroad started Onega. And what, why would a railroad do that? Is that because they wanted livestock put on the train at that location? The railroad that goes through Onega was the Western to start with, and then Union Pacific bought it. And it's the main line from Kansas City to Cheyenne. We have trains about every 20 minutes. The history of the railroad, actually, the the town was built here because they needed a water stop. Ah, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Yeah, Linda mentioned Vienna being a ghost town. A lot of these little towns around here that no longer exist did have cemeteries. And one thing our our historical society has started doing is hosting cemetery tours and talking about some of the people that are buried in those cemeteries and the history that they would have. And we're finding a lot of Civil War veterans buried around here that we didn't realize. During COVID lockdowns, were you able to do any of that virtually? Well, we did have some tours and they did tape them and we put it onto our Facebook we were never really live as such, yeah. but uh, we end up putting up what we could do. Talking about COVID, it did cause us not to be able to be open, but we were in a grant project with uh, Humanities Kansas called Crossroads Across America, and that was through the Smithsonian. Nice. <laughs> so here we had to come up with ways to try to make sure we were in a location where we could distance and they could cover up. And so we ended up going ahead with our crossroads project. We had several speakers come in and uh, during that COVID time. And, oh, I would say the people that were touring the museum did go down a little bit, but we really tried to have some events where we were outside a little bit more Mm -hmm. and, you know, made it optional for them to have their masks on or not, you know. That's fantastic. Uh, I thought we did pretty good that way. Well, we were typically close through the winter, which will kind of lead into our funding issues uh, because we only have one of our small buildings that only has any climate control. Our big Morton building Uh doesn't. Okay. And so it gets a little, and it's a cement floor. So it gets a little cold in the winter in there. And likewise, the cabin and the caboose and the one room school. So through a, a portion of the time with COVID, we weren't, we wouldn't have been open anyway. Right. So we kind of avoided that first wave of issues, but we did find a way to, with some of our programs, we moved to our local community center because it was larger and we could distance people easier. So we did make some adaptions in that way. What kind of funding model supports the society and what are your 2022 funding goals? Well, this is Debbie again. We actually have, say, two accounts right now with our historical society. One we call the general fund, which uh, supports all of our ongoing maintenance and administration costs, as well as bringing in programs to the community or working with the school system. And then we have a separate fund called the Building Fund, which Linda Linda is in charge of. So I'll let her talk about that in a little bit. As far as our ongoing funding model, there are five historical societies in Pottawatomie County. Oh, wow. Wow. Right. There's one at Havensville, one at St. Mary's, Womego, Westmoreland. 
So if someone would come to Potawatomi County, they could have a, an entire week of viewing nice. the different museums in our county, uh, plus some of the other historical sites. And we do have a, a real nice brochure on tours of Potawatomi County that if anyone would write us, we can send to them. Oh, that's great. But going back to that, our county commissioners, um, there's a particular mill that goes to the historical societies, but it has to be divided five ways. And so we get $5,000 from the county and then if we raise another $5,000, they will match that another five. So we can get up to 10000 from the county commissioners to help us with our funding. The second five of match goes into our building fund. So to run our museum, we're really only using 5000 from the county. I just recently figured out our budget for this past year, and we write a lot of grants, small grants, and so about 18% of our, our budget comes from grants, but a grant will be a targeted project. Right. And that's how we can do the, some of the programs that we're doing. Humanities Kansas is absolutely wonderful funding speakers to come out to rural areas. Prairie Band, Potawatomi Nation, you're asking about the Native Americans yeah. in the area. They're very, very supportive. For example, this past year, we actually got money from them to replace three ring binders. Now that may not sound like a big problem, but That's when you're trying deal. to store records and your binders are falling apart, yeah. anybody that comes in to look at them, it's just a mess. Not to mention these are probably original source records, right? A lot of them are. Yeah. And a lot of them are military records. We also get money. This past year, we've gotten utility grants from, well, it's through the COVID funding somehow through Humanities Kansas. And then we have, for example, the chicken house I was telling you about. Yeah. They needed a new roof. Well, that's the only original building on the museum property. That came, uh, The family that the museum bought the property from, uh, everything else was torn down except the chicken house. And the chicken house is special to this family. And they paid to have the roof done on the chicken house. Fantastic. The, yes, that was just, just wonderful. And the young man who donated his military uh, uniforms for the war on terror, he actually paid to have a case built to put them in. So those kinds of things is about another 40% of our budget, people taking care of us. If we had had to pay for the roof or the case out of our operating budget, it probably wouldn't be done yet. Uh, we just wouldn't have it. Our utilities take about 10 to 12% of our, of our budget a year. Thankfully, we have a young man that does all the yard work for us and doesn't charge, because that would be probably another two thousand a year yeah. that we didn't wouldn't have. So, if you pull our grants and special donations together, that's about fifty percent of the of our income. The other fifty percent comes from dues. The county we we don't we don't have a lot of things to sell. We do have one book that we we do sell on the history of Onega. Nice. Uh, so we operate off of about 20,000, recognizing about 10,000 of that. We hope each year we'll either come in through grants or people that are going to do a special project with us. The good news is you've got some pretty good community support and people looking out for you in terms of their giving their time and volunteering and donating. And it's growing. We have a good team of volunteers at our museum. <laughs> We're hard workers. One member that lives in Switzerland has sometimes called us hyperactive. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are always active. Now, you mentioned the building fund, and 
I was reading, oh, I think it was on your Facebook page. It said the building fund, if you give a donation to the building fund, then it's matched up to 50000 by an anonymous donor. Is that still in effect? Yes, it is. We, we started that back in June of this last year, but actually we've been trying to build up our funding for a new building almost three years now. Our goal is to try to get up to 300000 Yep. Uh, we're about maybe two-thirds that way right now. Uh, locally, we've had a lot of businesses donate. We've had family memorials being made. We've had soup suppers and different events. Just a garage sales. Garage sales galore, nice. it nice. seems like, last couple summers, but the match came in June. Basically, that anonymous donor said, well, if you can come up with uh, up to 50000 in fundraising somehow from here on, I'll match it with you. So if nice. we get that, we'll be close to 200000 by the time that we've hit 200. Oh, we've already hit the 200,000. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're on the last go. We still do have a little bit, uh, I know, from uh, the match yet to get the 50,000, but we're going to get there. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really great uh, that, that the community supports you that way. Now, you also have a PayPal account, right, that people can just straight donate to. Correct. We created that. And actually, I just gave Debbie a, a notice today that we had someone donate their $100. So it is ongoing and it goes directly into our building account at the, our local bank. It's a great way to give if you're not located here right now, because we've got a lot of alumni that are out of state even. And uh, we're starting to see some of that being given. And it's just great to see that they care or get about our little community where they grew up, or if we have a, a charitable organization just says, hey, this group is working and they're doing good things for the community. I want to continue to contribute because we are very active in trying to provide education for our community and uh, the school system when we can. So the building itself, uh, we hope to have a 50 by 100. Uh, we started nice. clearing some ground this last summer of we took some trees out, and uh, this next summer, I, we're hoping to maybe get it all leveled correctly for uh, a new building, and maybe this next within the next year or so. Now, will that new building be heated? Yes, we're gonna. <laughs> this is our goal. We're gonna we're gonna get it climate controlled, and that'll be yeah, yay. That's right. We're all looking forward to that. Uh, what about heating the existing building? Well, if we have enough donations. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I just didn't know if it was in your 22 funding goals. Is it? it no. You know, that's sort of a stretch, I know. But people it's need to be aware long. that this building isn't heated, that the fluctuations in temperature in the building from season to season could cause deterioration of the artifacts you're trying to preserve. That's you know, true. we're already seeing some evidence of that. And so we have talked about trying to climate control the, the, the big Morton building that we do have at this time. Yep. It, it simply comes down to funding. If someone was to, you know, just like the chicken coop roof, if someone out there understands that need and would like to target that as how they would like to have their money spent, mm -hmm. we would gladly, gladly climate control that building in a minute. That one's going to take some some pretty good funding, though, I think, it well, is. only because in my mind, 
the building may not have been designed with insulation, and therefore you'd have to put in insulation plus a heating system. This is Correct. true. This is Linda. Our committee is kind of starting to look at some options when we're building this. If we can't link it into a, you know, an environmentally friendly system, and we're looking at ground sourcing possibly, oh, and, yeah. and maybe even solar. We're looking at some grants. And maybe we can tie into those other buildings. But like you said, it isn't just a, a one fix. We have to look at all the other options, how many doors we've got in and out and, and what it economically is going to be feasible. We're looking at some grants to hopefully maybe provide some of that. Um, at this time so far, it's just been donations. So every time we have an event like the soup luncheon that we're having on Sunday, we do exhibit our proposals for you know our our vision of what a new building would look like and we hope that will create some uh, enthusiasm to see if maybe we can uh, have a good donation i'm so, sure it's going to be a wonderful building when it's done our new building we are really hoping to get it handy accessible reception area nice. a little kitchenette climate control is a major thing that's why we want this building. We want to get it really well insulated to preserve those artifacts like paper products oh, yeah. and, and our paintings and, and the woven materials that we have there. Of course, have some security and educational areas, possibly some storage and um, parking area. And if we are able to afford an internet and a phone, we really would like it. Right now, we don't have one. We just have volunteers that gives us access from their homes uh, so that we get communication done and then we all show up when we need to. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You mentioned that there's five other historical societies in Pottawatomie County, and you also mentioned a relationship in funding with the Pottawatomie tribe. I think Dale said that there's an airport in the area of the airport and the Pottawatomie tribe and the uh, five other historical societies. Do you have a relationship where you share exhibits with those other organizations or they share exhibits with you? At this time, we really don't share mainly because of lack of space. Right. And in our new building, we have talked about having an area that will be rotating exhibits, uh, whether they be from another museum or from the Potawatomi Nation or a local person that has something that's unique. Uh, we have one man in the community has a marble collection. Oh, nice. That, that would be fun to, to put on display. We just don't have that ability right now. Right. And in your new building that's coming up, are you going to have an event space or do you already have an event space where people can have weddings and, you know, get together? <laughs> our yard is the events. <laughs> <laughs> we have a beautiful yard in our museum. We really, really do. There's some oh, some walnut trees and it's between the caboose and the founders hall and the, and the log cabin. And so we have hosted class reunions oh, nice. and family reunions. City council. At city council. And we even had the noxious weed area regional meeting at our museum oh, a couple oh. years ago. In our new building, there will be, I don't know if you'd call it an events center, but at least it'll be an area that we can show up a, a program in. Yeah. Right now, when we do a program, we have to move a bunch of stuff out of the way in our big Morton building. Hang up a sheet. Hang up a sheet. <laughs> yes. To get the projection. And borrow a projector. 
So we do have plans to have an area where we can do our program that would say, oh, 40 to 50 people would fit in that area. Won't that be nice? Fantastic. To clear the land where the new building is going to go, we had to take down five magnificent trees. Oh. It just broke my heart. They were walnut and pecan, I think it was. Oh, wow. One was a pecan. A local person has a sawmill, and he got the logs from the museum, and he plans to cut the logs up and, and make us, say, trim for the museum, the board, the recognition board, depending on how much is left, maybe a bench, so that we can uh, somehow keep the memory of those trees alive. They were beautiful trees. Yeah, walnut's trees. an expensive tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So, hey, everybody, it's time we take our second break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, stay tuned. We'll continue having fun just after these important messages. Explore the history of Onega, Kansas located in your own hometown and nestled in the heart of Onega at 309 East 2nd Street. Bring your family, bring a friend, or just come on down today to the Onega Historical Society to learn more about why they love Onega, Potawatomi County in Kansas. Visit them at the Society's Facebook page today. This is Christy Deitmeyer from the Dyersville Area Historical Society, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Set a reminder to join us every two weeks for a new episode of Preservation Oaks, where in every episode we take you to a different place in time. To learn about and enjoy the history of another cultural organization, museum, historical, or genealogical society, each organization is unique to the area and communities it serves, and is one of our nation's Preservation Oaks. Just a reminder about the holidays we celebrate annually in these United States. Armed Forces Day is to acknowledge those still in uniform. Veterans Day is for those who served and have hung up their uniform. Memorial Day is for those who never made it out of their uniform. Please teach your children to observe these days each year. Captain, our computer is picking up a strange signal. Here, sir, you better take a look at it. You're listening to MicroStream Radio and Preservation Oaks. The world's only program communicating the value of museums, historical and genealogical societies across the USA. The most interesting show on the planet. This is Peggy. My friends call me Pickles. I'm a friend of Sean Thomas's. Regardless of where you're from, or which historical or genealogical society you're working with on family research, proper etiquette is important. You don't want to appear to have been raised by wolves. It's a good idea to know some essential skills when working with these valuable societies. Using proper etiquette will help you support the organization who are performing the sometimes grueling work to find information for you. Here are essential skills for you to know. Number one, if you're communicating with a historical or genealogical society and asking for their help in finding information about family members, pay close attention to their policies and take cues from them. Number two, Many genealogical and historical societies do not have all their paper and photographic records digitized and online. Therefore, things are not fast and easy for them, 
unless they get lucky. Many times, the society relies on the skill and knowledge of volunteers who comb through filing cabinets, books, directories, and newspapers to find information you are seeking. And that will be valuable to you. This can take hours, days, and sometimes weeks, depending on what you're requesting. Be aware of this effort. It is often invisible to you but quite real. Number 3. Regardless of the official policies, which are generally very low cost, whenever you make a request to a society. Please donate liberally to help cover the cost of the time it takes to complete the research, make copies, mail information to you, and so on. Number 4. If the society finds information that helps you, and from that, you know your family lived in the area, then good etiquette is to join and become a member, and then to donate regularly. You can always use Amazon Smile. Doing this causes automatic donations to flow to the society as you shop. As a member, you often receive discounts both on the books you may need, as well as additional research from the society. If you live in the area, it's a good idea to volunteer. That way, you can get to know the records and the history of the area. Having this knowledge will greatly improve the outcomes of your research. Number 5. Whether the research is fruitful or not, always send a thank you note or card in the mail and don't wait more than a day or two after research concludes. Address the society and thank them for the work they did and the information they sent, or just for trying hard to find something of value for you. Then add another short, positive comment to show your appreciation. Your note may be brief but heartfelt. It's easy to have good manners. These basic rules are just common sense. And now, back to preservation oath. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We continue where we left off with Debbie Burgess and her colleagues Linda Rogenkamp and Dale Renfro from the Onega Historical Society in Onega, Kansas. We've covered a lot for our listeners. Thank you for the information you've shared with us about your society, guys. And welcome back. Thanks. It's been a pleasure, Sean. Let's pick up where we left off. And I know you want to go into more history of Onega and sort of about the community. Why don't we start there? Okay. Uh, while ago, we was talking about the, the businesses in, in town. We have novelty shops, antique stores, feed store that's just recently opened, and a co-op pharmacy, three restaurants, two gas stations. Uh, this is Linda. We have a, a great farmers cooperative uh, here yeah. in our community that, uh, well, of course, we're in the agriculture area, but yep. they uh, work out of MKC through Manhattan that really supports our, our local community, too. Our, we have a bank and a trust company in our, our location. Uh, we're found here, oh, just on the north, north of Topeka, Kansas. Most people can uh, relate to that since that's the capital of Kansas, but uh we're actually the edge of the Flint Hills and have a unique area with just the trees and the river that goes through these hills in eastern Kansas. And this is where the Oregon Trail went through our little area. Um, and uh, we're just very, it's just a, a beautiful area just to visit during the spring and summer. And uh, we have a lot here to offer. 
Yeah, listeners, so get out to Onega, get out to Kansas. There's a lot there that people can see. How long does it take for a person to go through your museum and see everything and enjoy, you know, what you have? <laughs> you know, it depends on how in-depth a person wants to get with our museum. We are working really, really hard to document a lot of our artifacts with stories. And if you want to stop and read all the the facts and then the, the story yeah. of the family, we've had people, I had one man came through and he was done probably in, 10 minutes and I looked at him, I says, he says, now I know what I want to go back and see. Ah. And then he was there for about another two hours. We are very, very diversified in our artifacts. There has to be at least one area, one exhibit that everybody will be interested in. Yeah. Just because we are so diversified. I had one young man came and it was right at four o'clock and typically we close at four o'clock. And I says, oh, that's okay. I have some things to do. Four hours later, <laughs> <laughs> which I live real close to the museum and, and it doesn't bother me because there's always work to do in a museum. But he just was so engrossed with it that it, he, he read a lot. So, you know, it, it depends on the person. I would say the average person, probably two hours, okay. hour and a half. Two hours. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Now the listeners know, plan on spending the day in Onega. You can go to the restaurants and have brunch. And can they go to the museum, pay their entrance fee, then go out to lunch and then come back? Well, it's kind of unusual. <laughs> our, uh, this is Linda. Our, uh, our museum actually doesn't have a fee as such right ah, now. Okay. It, it is free will. It's a total free will donation. Oh, wow. And that's because our community does a great job of supporting us with donations. We love to have the family and kids come in and just really just use our museum to find out and learn. And so we've kind of left it that way at this point. Uh, we're debating, though, you know, if, if we get into a money crunch, maybe someday we'll actually charge a fee. But anything that we do, we it's usually just free will. Oh, thank you for that. This is Debbie again. It's kind of interesting, though. When I first started working at the museum, we received more, a lot more free will donations than we do now. And my son, who is in his 30s, says, but mom you don't take credit cards and the young, there's a whole generation of people that don't carry cash anymore. That's right. And we, we don't have a way right now to take a credit card or whatever the other systems are. We've got the PayPal account, but we do need to get away. Well, you would have to purchase a merchant account. And then get yourself a machine or two, right? Yeah, yeah. right. We just get it. We, we need to get a machine or two. And then I don't know if places like Visa it. or places that give merchants accounts would do that as a donation since you're a nonprofit. That Perhaps. Would be great. I don't know. Yeah. You know, part of the problem might be the fact that we don't have any. Any, we don't even oh, have a telephone internet. at the museum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so internet access. Too. When we have our new building and we have internet access, then then's the time when we will be looking seriously at doing something a little different. Yep, we're um, getting there. We're getting there. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned children and uh, children. How important it is that you do education. What kinds of outreach and education does the society undertake within the community? This is Debbie. Our star event, if you want to call it that, is to 
have a class of children come down and we rotate them between seven different stations. And Dale and Linda are two of the people. We have a, a volunteer at each different station and they get like 10 minutes at a station and then they have to go to the next station. So they find out a little bit about the entire museum complex. And then we have one teacher, third graders always come and do that. And then they come back the next Friday and um, they do a, like a museum search okay. to find uh, artifacts that they would have been told about when they came down. Oh, yeah. And then they can also choose their favorite area and spend more time in that. Every once in a while, the administration has let us have, have a, one of the in-service days at the museum so that we have rotated the teachers through the same kind of stations that we take the kids through because if the teachers don't know what's there, they don't know yeah. why they should bring their classes down there. Yeah. And so the in-servicing of the staff is very, very important. The history teacher at the high school brings his kids down mainly to look at, you know, sometimes it's in the military areas. This past fall, they were researching famous Onegans, if you <laughs> early Onegans, and they yeah. came down to the museum, I think, three times. The school is involved in a community service day on April 22nd, I think, is Global Youth Serve Day. The entire school goes all the students go somewhere and do volunteer work that day. The museum always gets the entire, usually it's the senior class, which in Onega is only 12 students or, you know, around there, but they come in the entire day and they do a lot of maintenance for us. Uh, they'll clean the gutters. They'll sweep the buildings out. They'll oh my gosh. do yard work. Um, and then the band teacher has brought his kids down several times to help clean around the museum. And then I will go into the school system and do programs for them, especially like on Kansas History Day, or I like to do something with Earth Day with the kids. That's nice. Um, so I think that's, well, in the summer then, on Fridays, we have kind of a craft day, but it ties to something in his, that would be historical. And in the summer, children that are in summer school they'll come down on that it kind of be their field trip because they can't get out of town a lot yeah. of times anymore with covid mm -hmm. and all that so it's been a real good relationship there That's um, so and our local library we've got to mention That's that true. she yeah. has done a great job of bringing her children over during the summers actually the summer reading program was done at the museum this past summer and so that brings kind of two audiences together in our in into our museum. And she does her reads a story and then we do a little craft with that. We have our annual Heritage Day, which will be the second Saturday of October. And we bring in anywhere from 10 to 15 different presenters and they set up a little booth and talk about, you know, what's important to them. We had that's where we had one of our Native Americans mm -hmm. came mm -hmm. last year. The Bonger boys in their 90s come and play bluegrass music all day long. Oh, that's and nice. that pulls in a lot of people. They, they enjoy listening to them. What wonderful yeah. support you have. Does the society publish a newsletter? This is Debbie. Not a traditional newsletter. Okay. Part of it is just simply time available to do such a thing. I try to send out an email to all of our members at least every two months. Uh, what I'm finding is not everybody reads their email. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as far as mailing something out at the current time, we wouldn't have the funds really to do to do that. You'd have to do our, it on Facebook or something, right? We have a, 
In fact, I have a list of about 15 members that have no email or Facebook. They, they simply don't do technology. Yeah. And so reaching out to that particular population presents us a challenge. But how do you keep the community informed about the progress of the society? Like when you say, hey, we're going towards a building and here's what we've got and here's what we need. How do you do that? This is Linda. At our functions, like our fundraisers, we'll, we'll have some advertising there. But there's a couple things that are real important is our annual meeting that we have with our membership. But we invite anybody in the community to attend. And that'll be coming up here in about a week or two. And, and usually we tell them what's going on in the group and, you know, funding and what, what we've accomplished for the past year. But probably one of the best communicators has been the Facebook. We created that a Oh, probably about two or three years ago. And uh, Debbie is probably very instrumental in, in getting out news there about what events are going on. And she'll post little things about the museum or a picture of this doll or that doll. Did you know? And Nice. Oh, people have really participated in that. Debbie might tell you a little more what she all does. It's just a typical Facebook, really. But I enjoy posting things about the museum. And another one of our members, who is the secretary, Deanna Fairbanks. Oh, we have a vet clinic in Onega, too, <laughs> on yes, a side. And a newspaper. And a yes. newspaper. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Deanna likes to video things. And so on our Facebook page will be the, for example, we had a quilt turning last Saturday. And she taped the entire program and oh, it is available great. for people to watch on. And we have a we have our own YouTube. Yeah, also. Put on and the newspaper um, is good about publishing any articles that we would send to them. So there is a certain segment of the population that gets through that relies on the local newspaper, the Onega Herald. Absolutely. And so th- it's important to get articles in them. And then we have a couple other county newspapers that publish our anything that we would send to them. Pretty much they will publish. And if we send pictures but probably Facebook for the, the majority of the people. Well, I've seen your Facebook page. It's really nice. Well done. Thank you. What kinds of records? You mentioned that your genealogical or your request for genealogical research has gone up in the last year, let's say. Uh, what kinds of records or historical artifacts has the society received? Or what, what can be accessed and what can be accessed for free? Or do you take donations? How does all that genealogical lineage research work? This is Debbie. We have a lot of family history books that have been donated to the museum. We had one lady who has a was related to a lot of the old names in the community. Okay. And her kids did not want, I don't know, she probably had 12 books of her own family history and pictures of everybody that she donated to the museum. Nice. So what we're finding is more and more people are donating their their family records to us because their children aren't interested in maintaining those. And in our little small community, it is just amazing who's related to who. (laughs) And so it's kind of like when you're working in a museum and you feel like somebody's there, you know, you'll run across a name and then you'll run across that same name in another branch. And so we have a lot of family records that that families are bringing in to us. And then as we clean things out or move things around in our museum, we run across things. And sometimes things we run across cause us, say, for example, to go to find a grave to find out who that person is or a little bit about them. And so we've just started developing books of, you know, once you find that information, you might as well print it 
So we started books uh, that have related information in it. We also have tons of books of obituaries, if you're interested in pawing through those. <laughs> um, what else do we have? We have a lot of old photos, and Deanna Fairbanks is scanning all the old photos. I was going to um, ask about digitization of your paper documents or your photos. Uh-huh. So that's actually, going on. We have a com- we do have a computer in the museum that is not connected to the internet so that if people come and they want to scan, for example, the family of Tessendorf, they will be able to plug that in and see what we've scanned that goes with that family. Nice. So we're getting there little by little. Absolutely. Now, are the artifacts the society's accountable for preserving all preserved according to well-established museum preservation methods, as well as like humidity and temperature? I know some of the artifacts uh, you've mentioned in the Morton buildings are not, but what about the, the paper, the clothing, that kind of thing? Well, this is Debbie. No, I, I, I hesitate to say that. Uh, when the museum was founded, bless their hearts, I'm not sure how they managed to pay for everything they paid for. Basically, things were, were housed and exhibited the best of their ability and financial means. And things will last for so long before you begin to notice deterioration. Yes. And so it's probably in the past five years that those of us that are at the museum quite a bit are beginning to notice that deterioration that just it bothers us greatly. And so that's why we need to, we need our new building. We have to get 90% of our stuff into a different environmental control. Yeah. If we truly want to preserve it. Now, like for example, the Indian artifacts, they're perfectly fine in the building they're in, but the Indian blanket that we might have isn't. And so we need to be able to move all our fire, anything that's fiber, fiber based into climate control if we truly want us to save it. Uh, you know, some of our paintings, uh, our, our watercolor paintings, we're beginning to see that, you know, how they warp a little bit. Oh, yeah. That's why we have to build, why we need the financing to, to move things of historical value into the correct preservation. This is Linda. Another comment, too, with that is it isn't just the fiber cell. That's why we put in so much money into that log cabin to restore it. I mean, you're, you're looking, we've, we've spent twenty to 30000 on that to get that back up to shape. But we lost a building, our jail. Oh. Uh, there was a jail there at one time, and they had tried uh, to keep, and uh, the building deteriorated too much. They just finally just had to demolish it. We did get a door off of it. Oh, wow. <laughs> doors and bars. Yeah. But, maybe so, a couple so, of pictures of it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. pictures are neat, but again, those pictures will be gone if we don't find a place to to house them. That's climate control. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important for the for the history to be preserved in in the right way, and and it can be expensive. It so. is expensive. We had a picture that we had it had to have reframed. Well, the frame had to be tightened up, but it needed new matting and it needed a different glass. And that picture alone was seventy dollars. And that might be how much free will donations we get in three months. <laughs> All right. So it's real, real important that people understand that we are offering a service to the community. And the, commu- and the community is very, very supportive. But it is expensive to properly maintain a museum. You know, something so simple as, you know, we have to have pest control. <laughs> you know, things that 
I oh, didn't absolutely. think about until I became a volunteer. Um, yeah, you can't have mice eating the photographs. Right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, but every museum will have those same kinds of things they have to deal with. Now, um, you, you were talking about genealogy, and I sort of took it off track. I'm sorry to do that, but I want to get back to that now. You have some genealogical records, probably some source records. You have a computer. You're digitizing photos and some documents and so on. Do you get a lot of requests from out of Onega, from out of state? You know, I just got a request from a, a man in Australia for some genealogical records yeah. of a family in Onega. It is it is greatly picking up. We are an active bunch. We're almost to the point where we need to figure out how to have enough money to hire someone part time to take care of some of this stuff because yeah. we're we're not a young bunch either. <laughs> well, some of those high school kids that are there, you can you can entreat them to hey, you want to get into yeah. history. <laughs> we do have a gentleman that lives in Switzerland that is related to people in the Neuchatel area, yeah. which is north of Onega. And he does a lot of genealogical research for us. If we have a name that we don't know how it connects Very in the good. area, he is extremely good at, at uh, finding that information for us. I was wondering how to pronounce that. Neuchatel is a uh -huh. Swiss community within your area. Mm-hmm. It's one of those kind of ghost towns, again. It has a, a lot of very proud citizens that live in that area. And then I was going to mention another lady that lives in Kansas City, close to the World War I Memorial. So if someone comes to Kansas for a week, that's a place I would recommend they go to. But anyhow, she does a lot of the military research for us. So we have people that are helping. And then some of our volunteers have amazing memories Yes. Of um, who lived where, when, and with whom. That's my and, next uh, question coming up, as a matter of fact. I'll let you finish and then go to that. No, go ahead with your question. <laughs> let me get one thing cleared up. When you do get these requests, do people donate? Is there a fee per copy? How does that work? We do not have any fee structure. Okay. Linda just got a PayPal from a person she didn't know. And she says, do you recognize that name? And I says, well, yes. He is one that has been asking for some genealogical information. So it's kind of up to the people that yep. request the information from us. Most of them will give us some type of donation. We have talked about some sort of fee structure, but we don't know how to put it together. That would, that would be equitable to everyone because sometimes it's our members that are asking for information. Yeah. And sometimes it's the next door neighbor who is not a member, but, you know, helps out. So at the current time, it's just a free will. So let's get to the volunteers. You, you mentioned a couple of times that you have some great volunteers, and that's wonderful to hear. What kind of opportunities for volunteers does, does the society have? You know, do you train volunteers or, or what can they do? The training is just to show up and follow us around. It depends on what they want to do. Volunteers can do anything from researching from their home for us to coming in and replacing the, the door on a building for us, to sweeping and cleaning up. We have some docents that come and do the tours or are, and are available when we're open. When I started, the best training in the world is just to follow an older volunteer around and listen to them talk to right. people when people come in, because then you kind of get the stories and the flavor of the exhibits. And so for those that are giving tours, 
I mean, everybody says, oh, I can't do that. I don't know enough. <laughs> I didn't know a thing when I started, yeah. really. And But I learned from the ones that were ahead of me. And I think that's the training that is the most valuable for those that are going to show the, the museum around. But we were in garage sales. So some people come in and work on the garage sales. Some people love to bake cookies for everything that we do. We, we For some reason, we think we have to have refreshments at everything we do. <laughs> So we have to have cookie bakers. Of course. We have a, a special form that you can fill out. Oh, here it is. If you want to help, you can work with the children's programs. Actually, we had one year, we had some high school students wanted to rearrange some exhibits. Oh. And one was in the in the log cabin. And they came and asked me if they could do that. And I says, that's fine. And they got done and they came back and they were so excited. You know, I had to come and look at their little exhibit. Well, I got tickled because in the log cabin, we have a dish that has some soap in it. Mm -hmm. And they'd taken that dish of soap and put it on the the table, the kitchen table. And we have the kitchen table set with um, tableware. And they'd put a little piece of that soap on a plate with a fork in it. (laughs) And (laughs) truly believing it was some sort of cheese. I says, do you know what that is? Was cheese. Well, no, it isn't. Well, then I turned around and in that log cabin next to the bed, is a chamber pot. Yeah. The lid on it, a metal chamber chamber pot. They had placed the chamber pot on the cook stove <laughs> like it was a cooking pot. <laughs> Only if you're going to so, tan leather. <laughs> so, you know, when we have people come and do things like that, it's a perfect education opportunity. And truly, truly, so many people just don't know. I had one young man look at me when I talked about the caboose, and I finally says, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, do you? And he says, no. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's important. It is um, totally important. It really is. And it's, if people like the work of flowers, we have a lady that has put in some flower beds for us that are just beautiful. Like I mentioned before, research. We have a, a young lady who has just joined and she loves cameras. Okay. And she says, well, do you mind if I fix that exhibit for you? I says, no, that'd be great, because as far as I'm concerned, they're just lined up in a row, and that's good enough for me. It's not for her. So she has her idea of what to do with that camera exhibit. And we've had some do the jewelry. We've had some do the military. Tess did baby clothes. So if someone comes in and says, you know, that over there is a mess. Volunteers are wonderful, aren't they? They really, truly are. They really, truly are. And then we have some people that do something simple, like save aluminum cans for us that we sell that goes into the building fund. Right. So there's all kinds of opportunities to get as involved as you want to be involved or as little. And we have some who who simply pay their dues and we're happy for that. We have one volunteer that's just local south of where I live. Well, over 90, isn't she now? Uh, about there. Yeah. And, yeah. No, 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 not 89. Oh, she's getting close. But anyway, she used to teach in uh, one school house. Well, she can be the best docent to talk about it because she was actually in the schoolhouse teaching. And then yet she does rug making or, or she makes food for our events or, or when we have a fundraiser or helps out in the garage. And nice. that's just one person that, you know, she helps where she can yep. and does a great job. And so when somebody wants to volunteer more, we'll think about and come up with something. 
how does the society interface with like state and county and regional societies? We're a member of the Kansas Museums Association, Museum Association, as well as Humanity Kansas. And so there's times when we go to their conferences. Uh, COVID has really done a done those conferences oh, yeah. in person. Oh, yeah. But um, both of those organizations are good resources for us, as well as providing some grant monies from time to time. So we have those. We belong to those. And like I mentioned before. Uh-oh, you the historical museums in Potawatomi County meet every two months. So I think that's, do we interface with any, that's pretty much it. Pretty much it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Has the society published any interesting books? We have one book that was developed by the early organizers of the historical society called the history of Onega and, and it was put together in 1982 and they did a lot of research about the early businesses and the early entrepreneurs, the early settlers in the area. Nice. So that's the one book that we have available. It's $20. It's a, a soft cover book. I want to remind listeners that the Onega Historical Society is on Facebook and you can find them there. You can communicate with them via email by sending an email to onegahistory at gmail.com. And you can send them regular mail at Onega Historical Society, P.O. Box 61, Onega, Kansas, 66521. The Onega Historical Society is closed from October through April. They're open by appointment by contacting onegahistory at gmail.com or calling 785-889-7104 or 785-844-0202 or 785-889-4546. Now, if nobody's able to answer at that moment, just leave a message and they'll get back to you. Okay, what's the easiest method for members of the public to donate to the society? Probably the easiest method would be through PayPal or to send a check, if they prefer a a check, to P.O. Box 61. Onega, Kansas. Onega, Kansas. Mm-hmm. So if I go to PayPal, I just look up, I can somehow go to PayPal and look up Onega Historical Society? It should be there. Uh, we have it on our front page of our Facebook account. Okay, good. And that's probably the best way to link up to it. On the very front page of the Facebook account, on the top part of the screen, there's a place to click and it will get you right into the to the place where you can donate. Why is the society important to the community and what makes you different or unique from other societies? This is Debbie. I think what makes us different and unique than from some other societies is that we really do focus on our local history and we focus on artifacts that have meaning to people in our community. As you know, from visiting different museums, each museum has a flavor a personality to it. Our personality is local history. Did you? Yeah. I would agree, yes. The importance in our community is truly, I think we are very instrumental in preserving the history of our community and preserving the artifacts of the family in the, in the community and also some of the businesses in the community. You know, I've seen things be thrown away from the local school that would have been nice to have been in a museum had they realized that they could have brought them to us. And 
So our outreach is to let people know that we are willing to accept a lot of the artifacts, especially those that have a historical significance. However, (laughs) we need another building to put it in. Absolutely. Thank you for that. What's the benefit of joining the society? So if I'm contemplating that, what, what are the benefits? This is Linda. I, I think the benefit is that you get to know and work with some really neat people and individuals that support your community. Sometimes um, we may not be as visible as, you know, as in the newspaper every day or on Facebook every day, but there are people that really care that we have a nice looking community and it isn't just a historical society, but we've got a city council, a fire department, businesses, uh, local people that really care about our communities, uh, whether they're helping with the schools or the churches or just the city themselves or in the area with farmers, making sure that we're buying their products and everything. I can't emphasize this the the hopes and futures of a small community are to keep growing, but yet it's the idea that we are a caring community and, and that we help each other out. I want to read a paragraph that our former president wrote, who is Linda Tessendorf. Please She's the president for probably 15 years. She wrote, the benefit to you in being a member of the Onega Historical Society is that you are contributing contributing to the preservation of your community's history and to your family's history. Membership lets you know there is a safe place in which to leave family's memorabilia should you choose to do this and that the story of your family will be told and on display. Growing our museum will provide a place for future generations to return for glimpses into your life and past generations. And an example of a glimpse into a past life. Recently, a prominent man in our community passed away who had been a barber for 30 years in the community. And he left his barbershop chair to the museum. And even though we're closed, we have people that you can come into our museum at any time with an appointment. And already we've had people stop and pause in front of that barbershop chair and go, you know, I remember when, (laughs) and I think for all of us here, the joy of being in the museum when we show somebody through and they go, oh, I remember when, or, oh, I have one of those. And it it brings back those memories that are so important to us. Absolutely. Thank you for that, guys. So here's a reminder from our very own Maddie Villanueva who will let us know the best way to learn more about and connect with someone in the society. Thanks, Sean. As Sean said, this is Maddie Villanueva coming to you with the best way to learn more about and connect with someone at the Onega, Kansas Historical Society. Okay, the best way to learn more about the society is to take a look at their Facebook page. To connect with them, you can email the society at onegahistory at gmail.com. You can also send U.S. mail to the Onega Historical Society, P.O. Box 61, Onega, Kansas 66521. Please note that the Society is closed from October through April. During that time of the year, they are open by appointment only. If you'd like to make an appointment, you can email onegahistory at gmail.com or call 785-889-7104 or 785-844-0202 or 785 889-4546.
You'll want to leave a message if they're not able to answer, and they'll get back to you. Okay, now back to you, Sean. Thanks, Maddie, and appreciated. Everybody say thank you, Maddie. Thank you, Maddie. <laughs> Very funny. Thanks again. All right, folks. Is there any other information or any message you would like the community or members to know about as they listen to this broadcast? Sean, uh, this is Linda. I have one. Uh, something we haven't mentioned. Uh, we mentioned all the benefits for a membership, yep. but I don't know if people realize how little they have to pay. It's only $5 a year to be a member of our society. Oh, my goodness. And, and, they, and they sure are welcome to join, whether they're local or out of state or out of country. So $5 per year. And if they want to go on and make a, a lifetime membership, uh, they want to keep involved and they know they do. We just ask for $100 and we'll keep them informed as either through an email, hopefully, or give them the Facebook account. But uh, we would love to see that membership grow and uh, they can just be on the sidelines watching us keep growing, but uh, we would love to have them keep donating. Thank you, Debbie Burgess, Dale Renfro, and Linda Rogenkamp for spending the time with us today. We've had some fun. We've learned a lot. I'm really glad to meet you guys because your community is just great. And it's great to know how much you and your society do to help the community and educate your members and the people, the public. Your society truly deserves to be recognized as one of our nation's preservation oaks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. And as you mentioned, it's been fun. We've had fun here, too. I think you've uh, given us some new ideas, so we've grown by having this podcast with you. That's so nice of you to say. Uh, Thank you very much. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Debbie Burgess, who is the president of the Onega Historical Society in Onega, Kansas, and her colleagues, Linda Rogenkamp, the treasurer, and Dale Renfro, the vice president. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up coming up next. We'll be right back to Preservation Oaks with Sean Thomas Radcliffe after these important messages. Remember that feeling of wonder when you learned something fascinating about the past for the very first time? The Onega Historical Society is bringing the past back to life. Their goal is to celebrate the rich history and culture of the Onega, Kansas and Potawatomi County. Be a part of the action by volunteering and supporting the Onega Historical Society. Visit their Facebook page and learn more about this valuable local nonprofit organization. Plan a visit, donate, join, and become a member today. You'll be helping so much. At Preservation Oaks, we love history. If you're a historical or genealogical society listening to Preservation Oaks, and you'd like to be a guest on the program, please email preservationoaks at gmail.com. Thank you. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. 
You know, in doing this series of programs, I've learned about some amazing places and the unique history of our nation, one episode at a time, one community at a time. I've also met some of the most rock-solid, caring, ingenious, creative, intelligent, and salt-of-the-earth people on the planet. These are people who have a deep love of the heritage of the area where they live, the hard work they do, a love of the communities they serve, as well as a powerful civic valor and work ethic second to none. I met more of these types of people in this episode. I and the listeners are better for it as it really does restore one's faith in community, goodness for goodness sake, and humanity. The people in this episode are highly qualified, with wide-ranging life experiences. They are experienced in serving the community first as professionals, and then as retired volunteers themselves who have made an enormous contribution to Onega's success. Created by the railroad in order to have a water stop for trains, Onega, Kansas, nestled in the beautiful Flint Hills, has history as a city since 1879. They have the Oregon Trail nearby, interesting activities to do and things to see, warm people to meet, and an American Indian nation in the area. A quote from Debbie Burgess, the president of the Onega Historical Society. In Onega, people care. Or the quote from Dale Renfro, Onega is my home and I want to see Onega strive to grow and move forward into the future. Finally, as Linda Rogenkamp said, quote, Here in Onega, we're all working the land. We're very much an agricultural community, and we all help each other out. In Onega, we see the hopes and futures of a small community to keep growing and help each other out. Onega is the real world. It's a gem set away from those who spend their lives as glitzy celebrities who pay others to generate their own attention-getting press at every turn, continually trying to convince people to be just like them, or some smarmy politicians suckling on the goodwill provided by the American people and looking down upon those same people. In a town like Onega, you learn and live honesty, perseverance, compassion for others, community service, and a love of God and country. In this episode, I had the good fortune to meet Debbie Burgess, Dale Renfro, and Linda Rogenkamp, who are leaders of the Onega Historical Society located in Onega, Kansas. They were so kind to share their time to help educate listeners and myself about Onega, the Historical Society and its museums, and the current list of the most pressing needs and priorities. First, let me say happy 47th birthday on February 3rd to the Onega Historical Society. The Society has been active since 1975, thanks to the good people of Onega. When you visit Onega, the Historical Society and Museums, you should plan to spend the day, because it'll take upwards of two to three hours to experience the history on display. If you're visiting from outside the area, you might want to plan to spend a week to see all the sites and various area societies since there are five in Potawatomi County. Now let's review the Historical Society top priorities. The first priority is a new building, which will have an education space. It'll be heated and climate controlled. A parking area, a phone, internet access, places for children and added storage for the artifacts the Society is charged with preserving. The new building will address most of the pressing concerns and will be an excellent asset for the community. 
Currently, the Society is unable to properly preserve the current artifact collections in the proper way. They are noticing some deterioration in the artifacts due to a lack of environmental controls. The Society lost the jail building on the property because it could not be preserved properly. The building committee is actively looking at grants, perhaps ground sourcing heat and possibly solar. Linda is leading the effort and everyone is working hard on it. So that's the first and foremost priority. Let's get a new building. The second is proper preservation of historic artifacts. Some of the artifacts are currently showing stress because the current buildings are not climate controlled. This also causes the Onega Historical Society Museum and the other buildings on the property to close through late fall and winter. Please donate to the building fund which has a matching grant, so whatever you donate can be doubled. Onega is getting so close to the goal amount needed to build something excellent for the community. They've been working on this for three years. Now you can donate directly from the Facebook page by clicking on the Shop on Website button at the top of the page. This will take you to PayPal, where you can directly donate without writing a check. The other three on my list of pressing priorities are internet access. Currently, the Historical Society does not have a connection to the internet. They need some kind of merchant account so they can take cards. Right now, they can only take cash or people can donate using PayPal. And they have no phones, so they really need some phones. The Historical Society has a wide range and volume of programs and events. I'm not going to list them all here because you can hear them in the episode. But a few are a Veterans Day reception at the Historical Society, hosting cemetery tours and then reviewing the history of the people buried in the cemetery. The Society provides education for the community and school children with several events a year. The Society hosts an annual membership and community meeting to describe progress being made and next steps. The Historical Society also provides education within the school system for the public and the teachers at local schools so they can help educate their students in their own history. The Society works with the Onega Library on the summer reading program and crafts for children. The Society helps to facilitate the annual Heritage Days events in October for the community. At this event, there are Octogenarian Plus brothers who play bluegrass music all day long. During the episode, Debbie, Dale, and Linda gave credit where credit is due by thanking and complimenting the vast array of good people who volunteer. Again, I'm not going to name everyone since you'll get the information as you listen to the episode, but just a few. There's a high school student who for the past four years each summer has been photographing the artifacts at the Historical Society so they can be cataloged properly. There's a veteran in town who donated his military uniform from the War on Terror, and he purchased the case to display the uniforms in. The young man who donates the yard work for the society each summer. There's a local man who owns a sawmill and is creating boards from the trees removed from the property in order to clear space for the new building. He is making a recognition board and other things from the wood for use by the society. In terms of volunteering, the Society has something to do for everyone. There's many other interesting things covered in this episode, and I hope you enjoy them all. Who knew what a wigwag is? 
We learn a bit about the Historical Society's Railroad Museum. They have track laid, a boxcar that hauled automobiles. On the inside of the museum, there are railroad exhibits and artifacts. Call for a tour today. We learn what exhibits are displayed in the two Society Museum buildings. So much Onega history. We learned what a doughboy is in the town and how it is cared for and used to honor veterans in the community. Dale let us know why the Western Railroad was interested in starting the town of Onega. Debbie and Linda reviewed the funding and grants the Society has used to make consistent improvements for the community. The Society only takes donations for the work they do, helping people with genealogy research and for admission to tour the museums and buildings on the grounds. Membership is $5 per year, and that's a steal. You can get a lifetime membership for $100. So if you're not a member already, please become a member. And finally, Debbie read a statement from the previous president that perfectly describes the benefits of becoming a member of the society, volunteering, visiting, and donating. There are so many questions I could have asked Debbie, Dale, and Linda during our time together, but I couldn't in the interest of time. Not if, but when questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please contact the Society. If you're a listener in the area the Society serves, or if you're a listener researching ancestors from the Onega, Kansas area, and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting the Society. You can contact the Society at onegahistory at gmail.com. They also have a Facebook page where they share a lot of information about the activities underway at the Society at any given time. You can mail the Society at Onega Historical Society, P.O. Box 61, Onega, Kansas, 66521. The museums are closed from October through April. They're open by appointment by contacting onegahistory at gmail.com or calling 785-889-7104 or 785-844-0202 or 785-889-4546. Now, if nobody's able to answer, just leave a message and they'll get back to you. The quickest way to donate to the Society is to use PayPal. So go to their Facebook page. There's a button on top, a blue button, and you can donate immediately. Or you can write a check and send it to P.O. Box 61, Onega, Kansas, 66521. I really hope this episode helps the audience understand how valuable the society is within the community and what kinds of excellent services they offer their members and the public. The Onega Historical Society is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks and I wish them much success. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used for this program is from Scott Holmes and Symbol Bird, Reed Mathis, Tim McMorris at timmcmorris.com, John Bateman, and the 126ers. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. On behalf of the team, Greg Preston, our producer, Katie Bialis, Dave Davenport, Victoria Pithcarnell, Maddie Villanueva, Catherine McGuire, Anwuli Okwudili, Peggy Wilson, and myself, 
we say thank you for listening. We're really glad you enjoy the program. Keep the questions and comments coming. We answer everyone that we receive. I'll see you next time on Preservation Oaks.